0: ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors, from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service and all garage door repairs, with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, Call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at ProLiftDoors.com Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or ProLiftDoors.com slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are honored to have Minority Leader Representative Christine Drazen on the show.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, To start out, I wonder if you could just give us maybe a 30-second to two-minute bio of who you are, what you do, how you got here.
2: Two minutes. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: However long you want to take.
2: I am originally a Southern Oregon girl and have lived up in the Clackamas County area for about 20 years. And Representative Bill Cannimer retired after serving for a very long time at different levels of government. And I had a good friend call and say, Hey, would you ever think about running for office? And uh, to which, what's the standard answer? you gotta be kidding right and (laughs) but then I kind of paused and I took a look to see who else was running and decided that I did not feel like I was going to be represented by them so I made the decision to go ahead and run for office and that was a mere two years ago and a little bit of change and and I've had the opportunity to serve almost a full term. I was sworn in in January of 19. And um, now I am House Republican leader as of September of 2019 and running races across the whole state to restore some balance in Oregon. But this is my place. I've lived in Oregon almost every minute of my entire life. I love this place. Fourth generation, all that good stuff. So what was I going to do when it was you know driving itself into a ditch? I wanted Mm -hmm. to be a part of pulling it back out.
0: It's funny that you bring up balance. So back when I was deciding for a campaign slogan, uh, decided to pick bringing balance back to Oregon mm. and discovered afterwards that I am now one of about 17 Republicans with the <laughs> exact same logo or uh, slogan. So um, anyway, glad to know everyone's on the same page as far as balance in Oregon.
2: Uh, I think that there's something to be said for a common goal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned that, and not to get too much into party politics, but you mentioned that you only served for one year before being voted leader.
2: Technically, eight months. Yeah,
0: eight something. months. Wow. Yeah. How did um, that's that's quite a quite a step. Um, I, what what made that made you decide to do go that route?
2: Well, I am really committed to never experiencing the same kind of session that I did for my first session, like. 2019 in the Oregon legislature was such a heavy handed approach to governance that I want to, I wanted to pick up seats and I wanted to participate in the process in a way that could make a difference. And you don't get to make a difference just by talking all the time. And I do a ton of press releases in this role and I say a lot of stuff, but the thing that matters is getting people elected because How you vote determines the direction of our state right now that the legislature affects everything, you know, from our roads and our schools. I mean, if there's a part of your day, if you woke up in this morning, this morning and your feet touched the ground from that moment forward, maybe before the legislature probably had something to do with your day, whether you realize it or not. And so I was just very committed to change and had the uh, opportunity to. Uh, run for the position and went ahead and did that. And I really enjoyed um, working with Representative Wilson, who was the caucus leader right before me. I've known him for years and years. He served in the legislature when I was staff, in my in my misspent youth. <laughs> <laughs> and so i I have known him and his family for a very long time and have deep respect for him and but the opportunity to, Be able to have a voice in who's recruited and what kind of races we run. Um, it was something I wanted to participate in. So it's, it's a privilege to be in this role.
3: So I'd be curious, uh, from the outside looking in, both for, you know, folks outside of Oregon and, you know, and even for folks who are not as politically engaged as somebody who's been elected to the state legislature, you referenced the last session, the 2019 long session. As being very heavy-handed uh, from Speaker Kotek and Governor Brown, and it, which led to you know a number of things uh, up to and including the walkout, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people see, and a lot of people see you know Oregon Republicans have just fallen down on the job and just you know running away, hiding and scared. When I think the reality of it was a lot more nuanced and a lot more the powers that be pushing our party to the position that it was at, where that was the last tenable solution. Would I? Would you agree? And I, what, what kind of things do you think made that so heavy-handed on the part of the left?
2: Well, I think the first thing I, that's really important to know about um, serving in the legislature and politics in general is a lot of the outcomes are determined by the process. So the rules that we adopt for ourselves define who has a voice, Um, the rules uh, define how the chamber operates. And not to get too in the weeds, but that's really, really important Mm -hmm. because it means that the Speaker of the House gets to select chairs and committee membership. And the Speaker of the House gets to decide which bills go to which committees with which chairs and which members. And then the Speaker of the House gets to decide which bills come out of those committees. And so we have this system that's structured to have really centralized power. And when you add on to that centralized power – at the end of session, you have one-hour notice. It's it's post and go. Hmm. And the opportunity for public input gets narrower and narrower and narrower. So the protections that you have when you get to that point and you're in a super minority with Democrats uh, having substantial majorities for just straight vote counts and then you have a Democrat governor who is appointed more – Justices Mm. than any governor in Oregon's history. She personally has appointed more than 50% of the Supreme Court. You know, you just go through everything that's happened in Oregon in recent years. Your only protections are the Constitution and your House rules. And when it came time for them to move forward on the bill that was cap and trade, which would have dramatically impacted Oregonians... To the tune of 22 cents per gallon for gas, just to start kicking up from there to three bucks a gallon. It would have decimated our highway trust fund. You know how I mentioned roads mm-hmm. are part of what we do. It would have meant that we wouldn't, didn't have funding to be able to maintain our roads, let alone expand them and deal with congestion. On and on and on. Mm-hmm. So there's this really, really consequential piece of legislation. And the only thing standing between us and having that passed are the rules. And the rules say when a bill moves through committee, it passes in certain ways. When it's in ways and means, you have to have a certain number of people pass it on the Senate side because it's a joint committee Mm -hmm. and on the House side separately. So the Senate president comes in and adds himself to the committee. He's never done that before because he can't get it out of committee on his own. So he's gonna, he's not gonna follow the rules. He's gonna break the rules because it suits him. Mm-hmm. When it's going through the process, we have these standards that say our nonpartisan offices get to evaluate this legislation. They're gonna tell us what's in it. They're gonna tell us what it costs. They're gonna tell us how much money it raises. And they don't do that. The piece of paper that they attached to this huge piece of legislation that's gonna change the face of our economy, you know, for the next 30 years, mm-hmm. it was a sheet of paper that said indeterminate. And we're going to move that legislation through the process. It's going to get a pass when my little bill that would have said students who are assaulted at school, the school gets to – should tell the parents about that. There's a little loophole right now. It's a tiny little bill. They said that they couldn't move that forward because it didn't have adequate stakeholder input. (laughs) But cap and trade – Without actual analysis from our nonpartisan staff gets a free pass and the Senate president gets to change how our Joint Ways and Means Committee operates Mm -hmm. because he can't quite get it done within the rules. I mean, they had basically taken the rule book and the standards for how every other piece of legislation passes and they just burned it right in front of us. And they said, we're going to do this come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. You're getting cap and trade. And in that moment, it's not a matter of running and hiding. It's very, very, very... Um, I'm gonna just speak for my caucus. It was brave of them mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. this um to take this stand in protest and demand that the supermajority we were calling them back to the table. I had conversations almost every single day with the Speaker of the House where you know, can we come to an agreement? Will you come back to the table? Will you consider amendments to this legislation? We want to come to a resolution here. And in the end, we said we want to come back cap and trade has passed its opportunity to move without rule suspension we'll come back let's move all the rest of the docket for session and because they didn't get cap and trade they were willing to walk away from everything all else that rest was on of the
3: legislation list. yeah the rest
2: of it didn't matter anymore because they didn't get the one thing that they wanted and that's what abuse of power looks like abuse of power says it does not matter what it takes i'm going to win because i deserve to win no one else gets any break. No one else. I, I, I will concede to none. That's abuse of power. And that's what we saw. And for both caucuses to completely band together and, and frankly individually make the decision, I'm going to stand up for my community. I'm going to stand up for my state. I'm going to demand better of my process. From my perspective, that's brave. And all of us get to go now back into our communities and stand for reelection and be accountable for that decision. Mm-hmm. Whatever comes next. We had to have all known exactly why it was that we denied quorum, because not only was it the only option available to us to draw the Democrats back to the table, but everything else about that process was so broken. It had, they had to be reminded that there has to be, there have, there has to be limits to power. And that was our only opportunity to really exert on them any accountability for how they were exerting their power. It was a difficult decision. But I'm, but my, but my caucus um, stood together in that, really, truly, in defense of both the process and the policy.
0: It's really interesting. I remember reading articles about that afterwards, and the the media, of course, said when it was interesting that you point out that the Democrats you offered to come back to push through the the remaining docket, and but the articles I read all said, oh, it's because of the Republican walkout that we couldn't get. Funding for this, there was this other thing that was I, I forget what all was on the docket, but they they blamed all of you, yeah, for that.
2: It's funny because recently, when we had the most recent special session, that was the one day special session where the presiding officers made the decision to not take public testimony. We railed on them about that. We couldn't believe that they had made that decision. But as the presiding officers, as I mentioned, that's the level of power that they can exert within our rules. They, when they got public pushback on not having taken any public testimony on any legislation during that session, they blamed Republicans. And it was the first time that, that the media pushed back against that. There was an op-ed in the Oregonian and that op-ed said, you gotta be kidding me, right? You, <laughs> you guys made the decision not to take public testimony. And now you want to tell, now you want to say that the super minority Republicans refuse to accept uh, public testimony. That is ridiculous. So there was a little bit of uh, accountability there. But traditionally, <laughs> uh, the media takes kind of um, kind of at face value, uh, whatever the supermajority sort of feeds them, kind of regardless of the facts of the case.
0: There's other thing is kind of interesting that I've been posting publicly about is now that in the light of Black Lives Matter and the fact that we're coming on 90 days of protests in downtown Portland, this is a very left-wing movement. I mean most of the people there are calling for I mean they're they're left-wing folks and they completely miss the fact that Democrats have been controlling the state for the last 30 years yeah and they will complain about Trump and blame about Trump in the last three and a half years has not done the damage that 30 years of Democrats has in, their inaction on the way in the light of uh, of black lives and police brutality and it's just like how do you guys not see that it's the people you claim to be on the side of are the ones who could have done something about this decades ago.
2: Absolutely. And
0: nobody, like, nobody seems to make that connection.
2: Yeah. We had not updated our statutes around what's permissible for law enforcement since the seventies. Wow. And that, I mean, that's overdue. Mm-hmm. That is appropriate to look at those statutes and say, you know what? We have a completely different sense of what com- community policing looks like. And in reality, if you, when I was talking to folks in the law enforcement community, they didn't abide by what was allowed in statute. They followed the court cases. And so training has progressed dramatically from the days of what was permissible in Oregon statute. But the Democrat supermajority didn't even bother to update Oregon statute to align with court cases. That is yeah. how little they were being responsive to minority communities and and their concerns related to policing. And so um, I supported the police accountability measures that moved through the m- recent special sessions because not only were they necessary, uh, but they had they had arrived at the legislation that came before us in a way that. Drove people to the table and to consensus on that legislation, and um, and I really do think it was it was a it was a model for how we can move forward together on those very very difficult issues that we have to address as a community and a state.
0: I don't think that being for police accountability is necessarily against police. I right. think that the narrative right now has become if you're for police accountability, you must be against police, or if you're for black people, you must be against police. If you're for police, you must approve of everything that police do. And none of those things are true. Like you can I, I'm with you. I, I've been talking with um Xander who's been on the podcast a couple of times. Regular listeners will know who I'm talking about uh and he's do we been have down regular <laughs> listeners these poor people <laughs> we have a couple three or four um and uh but talking to him because he's he's more of a liberal republican for lack of a better term as as our as i sometimes can be uh he's been down to the protests and ta- is very vocal about police brutality and, and what's been going on down there working with him about like how can you how can we as republicans do something rather than yeah. just there was a back the blue protest counter protest whatever and somebody ended up pulling a gun on the black lives matter people I'm like guys that that is the opposite of what you should be doing mm. this you're not helping anyone much less the police by a having a, a rally in the middle of the black lives matter who are they going to take it as a threat and of course you're in fights and all sorts of stuff and somebody's going to get shot at some point well, somebody then,
3: did in wisconsin like yeah the guy 17 year old brought an ar-15 and killed two people in wisconsin which is Jeez. like that's it, and it's and, it, gonna happen in portland yeah.
0: it's gonna happen in portland and it's just we've gotten to such a place in our public discourse where if you make a statement halfway to one side you're already you're labeled as an extremist and there's there's almost no room for middle ground or any sort of nuance or you know hey i support the police but i also think that they shouldn't have carte blanche to do whatever they want and i support black people but the black lives matter movement is run by a bunch of like really bad people who actually want to destroy the the country and not hyperbolically but yeah. actually want to tear down the fabric of the country i'm not i don't support that but yeah. do support I, black people but i do think too that
2: <laughs> i do think that uh, what has what I have begun to understand is that the police want to work with other professionals that really care about the community too. Like they don't want the bad apples in their numbers. They want to be sure that there's accountability. They, they want, they want, for, they want a clear path for people that make them look bad, uh, to not wear the uniform or carry the badge anymore. Or the gun. And so I really view uh, the law enforcement community as as partners trying to figure out a path forward. I think that's the thing about the difference between politics and policymaking Hmm. is that politics is going to tell you what the people want to hear. Policymaking is going to get you what the people need if Hmm. you bring the right people to the table. And that was the problem with overreach and abuse of power and a super majority concept where it's all one side. The people you bring to the table are different variations of yourself.
1: Mm. And
2: what we need to bring to the table are people that run the full spectrum of who's impacted and stakeholders who care about issues. And you will come to a better policy uh, the more voices that you're willing to listen to and and I think that as we move forward, that the more we get past the politics of this moment and are able to create policies that are responsive to where we need to be, you know, for the next 20 years, hopefully it won't take them that long uh, to review some of this stuff next time. Um, I think that you <laughs> get, years. <laughs> I think you get to that when you can dial down the heat a little mm-hmm. bit and take people who really want to make a difference and, and give them a voice. And I am uh, honored to be able to have a vote. And I was talking to somebody on this issue, and they were asking me um, when I was gonna release a statement. And it was right after Joy- George Floyd had, pat- had, had been killed. And I was struggling with how to respond to that. Not as a person, as a person I was horrified. Mm-hmm. But I feel the weight of being a House Republican minority leader in the state of Oregon. That what I want to do is uh, bring peace and be a bridge. And what I don't want to do is um, speak too quickly or speak for people that should be able to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I was I took some time to decide. How I wanted to approach that issue, and what I wanted to say, and um, and sort of processed myself among among people that I that I that I trust, that I want to know what their experience is as people of color, and and sort of what they would be looking for from a politician in this moment, uh, because I think that people who's the people who need to be heard right now are not necessarily electeds. Uh, there are a lot of electives with a lot of opinions right now. I think that it's time for, uh, for the people who have felt like they are not at the table to be invited and for them to have space to speak. And I think though that that can never be confused with destruction of property, breaking our laws, threatening lives, mm-hmm. and, um, and lawlessness. There, there is a chasm, an appropriate chasm between those two things. There's not a bunch of gray. Where you were, uh, you know, like a peaceful protester and all of a sudden, you know, you found a rock in your hand and you were throwing it <laughs> at somebody's head. That doesn't happen. Right. Like, that is not, that's not, that's not rational.
1: <laughs> nice,
3: <laughs> nice plug. I,
2: I, do, I do not believe that that is how that stuff plays out. Like, you go with intention.
3: Well, so. and it's, I, I, it's funny that what you had just mentioned about uh, we need to exercise the bad apples outside of the police force. And I think that that's absolutely correct. And I, it's wonderful to hear that you've been speaking with law enforcement who have said the exact same thing, because that is certainly not a pre- profession that can even afford even one bad mm-hmm. apple. I feel like it's the same way with the protesters. And there are, right. there's an amazing amount yeah. of wonderful, driven, passionate individuals who clearly fear for for their lives and their safety and the lives of their black and indigenous people of color uh, all in downtown portland every day and then i feel like that's now been co-opted to an extent by antifa and you know just general anarchists and i feel like these protests are also they're kind of in the same boat of you you can't have one or two bad apples in the protesters because now the conversation has shifted from how do we fix the policing of our minority communities. To if you're a Democrat, you're carte blanche support everything that's going on, and if you're a Republican, you say, "Well, you know, there's just they're rioters and looters." And on both sides, the message has gotten lost about the actual reforms that need to be discussed and then enacted into law. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's it's just kind of a shame that we've now let the narrative slip away from some of these really important, really mm-hmm. difficult conversations that need to happen. I'm oh, going
2: to and- admit that I thought when we passed. Uh, the first round of police accountability measures, I naively thought that that mattered to people. Hmm. And when we passed uh, funding for communities of color, I thought that that would matter for people. Mm-hmm. I thought as a legislator, those ideas and those proposals were intentional and they had weight. They were intended to have weight, I guess is the better way to put it. Um, but it really didn't stop anything in downtown Portland. Um, so I'm not sure what will stop the things in downtown Portland. I think the people that are down there now, that are um, that are harming people and property, need to be arrested. Mm-hmm. And it's time and for them to be for them to be arrested and prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And when you have a DA that makes statements that he's going to sort of selectively prosecute based on his political preferences. I was stunned and shocked by that, and I asked uh, the governor to consider appointing a special prosecutor mm-hmm. because what we need to have are some consequences so people recognize that we have a rule of law, and that needs to continue.
3: And what is he's like 29 or 31 or something like He's insane. I can't the, judge. I'm the, ancient. The, the, He's the, insanely ideal. The well, theory, I, I don't like, even know. to be that much of an ideologue and that young of an age to 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 be he- helming the, the you know it's a lot the county of as County's DA and to come in at a time like this and to just throw your hands up and say I'm not going to do anything, which is and
2: intentionally I, like he said. Yeah. yeah, I align. You know, like yeah, I, I sympathize here. Doing. I believe in what they're doing.
3: I uh, so I'd be curious to to change gears a little bit to springboard off something you said a second ago um you referenced the the finesse that has to come between politics and policy and i wanted to ask about your time as chief of staff because i feel like that kind of teed you up to be you know almost uniquely suited to take on the role that you've got now because you've got the politics and the policy and frankly The parliamentarianisms, you've got, you got the three P's there, the three (laughs) big P's of, of understanding how laws get made, of how laws get passed, and of how to, you know, manage relationships and actually, uh, you know, get them enacted. Do you look for those types of things when you are out trying to recruit, uh, you know, folks to run for office here statewide? Or, you know, what, what in your mind makes a, a good legislator, somebody who can be as successful in position as you have been?
2: So, I look for people who are rooted in their communities and are committed to the best interests of their communities first. And so, I, that is, that is absolutely um, the metric for me. And the reason that I feel so strongly about that is on the other side of the aisle, they have a machine, at least it's, it's fabled to be a machine, right? Where they, Where they identify and then farm a candidate. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they just literally grow them up and move them along until they're ready for the next step and the next step and the next step. And then they, and then they ask them to move from district to district and they identify the best district for them. And then they move there and then they run for office. Mm -hmm. And that for me, this, like I said, I am a little bit, um, schmaltzy about my lovely state of Oregon here and it doesn't feel right i feel like the people who ask to represent their communities should be there for long enough to know what the community's facing yeah. broadly speaking and and so my value set is local leaders that, that are going to vote on behalf of their communities and not and not be there just to push a private agenda but represent their communities we are not in the in the state legislature we're not 60 little governors. No, we are representatives of 60,000-ish people for each of us in our different districts. And I, I take that really, really seriously. Um, and so when I am out talking to people about the opportunity to serve, it is a, it is a season in life. This is not a career. And you do this work in service to your community and your state. And you do, you do the best work you can. It's a steep learning curve. There's a lot of policies. You will learn about a little bit of everything, a lot of things you didn't even know that the legislature engaged on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to, you have to really love to learn. You have to be a willing listener. You have to be, you have to be a willing leader because you can't hide in this job. Mm -hmm. And you are, there will always be someone that's a little bit dissatisfied with your approach to something.
1: A little bit. And so, yeah, just a little bit. Just a little
2: bit. One of these days, I want to, I want to make like a series of t shirts of all the various things that I have been called in the brief amount of time I've, oh, I've served in this role. Um, but I, but it has to be about, it can't be about the noise. It has to be about having your own, your own lens through which you make decisions and serve your district. And for me, it's, it's a little bit uncomplicated. I believe really strongly that government has an important role to play. I'm not there to be anti government, but government needs to have sharp edges. Mm -hmm. It needs to have an end needs to have, it needs to have a role. It needs, it needs to, you know, provide the safety net and we need to fund schools and we need to fund roads and infrastructure projects. And there's a whole lot of stuff that government, in fact, is not the best entity to take the lead on. And so, from my perspective, when you can clearly articulate what the role of government is, it frees you up to be able to demand high performance and accountability from the work that's done within those boundaries. And then to allow peop- allow the rest of your community to fill in the rest of those responsibilities. Yeah. People have more freedom. There's more opportunity. And so, if you're fair and if you provide equal opportunity and you and you operate within the confines of what government should accomplish then you can have a government that actually is well-functioning. If you have a government instead that's heavy-handed, political, and everything is agenda-driven in response not to the needs of the moment but to um, but to these larger agendas and personal ambitions, which I can tell you I've seen quite a bit of up close and personal, um, then you, in fact, will will see it. The people of your state will not be as well-served. And, and so it is, it's not complicated for me so far when I look at these issues. How does this affect the people in my community? And does the cost, does the cost, in fact, is it worth it for what the benefit's going to be here? Is, Is, is the cost benefit analysis legitimate?
3: Well, and it's it's funny that you you mentioned some of that. I, I we were talking off Mike, and I mentioned my father and my brother came up from uh, Central Texas this past weekend, and they just had an absolute ball of a time. We we got the chance to go out to a really nice Italian restaurant in Portland. We drove down to Bend on Friday, and they saw we went over twenty six, so they saw Mount Hood, oh, nice. and they saw you know, some of the fires. But then down in Central <laughs> Oregon, and right. then we saw you know this beautiful lake. We took. Took a quick day trip to Cannon Beach on Sunday, and they saw the coast. They oh, saw Haystack and Rock. You
2: showed them all the fancies, it,
3: exactly. <laughs> and so now, and they're now they're back in Texas, and they're just like they're already planning the next four trips to come back. They're already like we got to go fishing here, and we got to go camping here, and we got to go out eat at this place. And I had this wonderful time. Just you know, Oregon is this just this magical playground has all these great things, and then. They left Monday morning, and I picked up the Sunday Oregonian, and it's just oh, and it's right. Like we still have all of these things, and such great, so many myriad examples of the the heavy handedness and the lack of definition of the role of government, the lack of uh, a goal setting a, in any capacity, and we've just got you know I I had mentioned the fires, we've got obviously the the riots that are ongoing, we've got now a coronavirus driven, albeit but a massive budget crisis, and it's just like everything that you just said is true it's it's so weird that we live in this state that's so dichotomous it's beautiful and has wine and fishing and everything and at the same time we can't get any better leadership than what we've got obviously present company excluded (laughs) and i mentioned a little bit off mic before we
0: started i look forward to the day when we can have those discussions about the role of government and when the r by my name doesn't stand for racist and we can get beyond this discussion when everybody's on the same side when it comes to race and gender. And uh, I'm so frustrated with politics these days because you can't we can't have those discussions because everybody just goes to the least common denominator. And, you know, I have to first convince you that I'm not racist before you're going to have any sort of discussion about policy or what the government should be doing. And I just uh, I look forward to the day when we don't when we don't have to do that.
2: Well, and I also, the urban center here in Oregon isn't Oregon. Mm-hmm. And when I say, you know, I'm an Oregon girl, this is my place, mm-hmm. I'm Schmalty about my place, like I love all of the beautiful parts of this state, and people want to come to Portland and farm to table and, mm-hmm. you know, like great food and, you know, terrific craft beers and all these things about this place. And it's not, it's not quite kind of worked out its challenges for how do you give people a voice without mm-hmm. allowing them to crush the rights of other people by, mm-hmm. you know, vandalizing their property or whatever. That doesn't seem complicated to me. But in Portland, it's complicated. There's been and a if, lot of economic it, harm. If
0: it truly is a few bad apples then they need to be arrested and prosecuted like we were talking about. Yeah. And the rest of the peaceful protests allow it to continue. Work toward that place where you can have a discussion, an open discussion um, with multiple stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when we're when there's tear gas and arson going on every single night, it's uh, you can't have that discussion.
2: Okay, but here's what I was a teeny bit encouraged by last night. What, last night or the night before. Deborah Kafori Deborah Kafori. Mm-hmm. She said, folks, there's kids there. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. She actually played a role in preventing harm hmm. to somebody. She spoke up. She said, I want you to consider these facts. There are kids at the place you're planning to go tonight. They are not uh, They're not incarcerated. That's actually where they live. Reconsider. Think about the kids and their families. Do something else. When she did that... It changed what happened next. The leaders Hmm. in Portland have the opportunity to communicate with their community in a way that can be productive. I'm sure of it, and I'm sure they're trying, and I can't imagine being in their shoes. Let me be honest. I cannot imagine being in their shoes. But Deborah Kafori's efforts improved the situation.
3: Hmm. I actually they it was a uh, week ago or something that they that they set the Multnomah County building on fire and she said a similar statement after that she said this is the the home of all these services that the county provides we exist to serve yeah the you know Multnomah County and the citizens of Multnomah County please stop doing this and I I volunteer for a budget committee for Multnomah County I've had meetings in that building every week for the last 4 years or you know for sometimes of the year and I was, I disagree with Deborah Kafori on a lot, both <laughs> philosophically and in terms of like leadership style. But I was, I, to your point, I was very, I almost taken aback by it. It's just like, Hey, this is a, a positive statement that, you know, some amount of condemnation from somebody on the left. It's not just me and James, you know, harping on our podcast here. It's somebody who's actually saying, look, this is, we work for you. This is you. you can't accomplish this is your building. By, yeah. Yeah. What this is are here to doing? serve
2: you. And, and I hope to see more of that. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that the folks that live there uh, would love to have someone step in and, and help bring this to a peaceful end.
0: The Justice Center is in my district. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not, not that building that you're talking about, but yeah, right. the Justice but, Center, we're yeah. the epicenter of a lot of what's going on. So, wow. Well, it's been, I
3: live 10 blocks from there. It's good uh, times. I'd be. <laughs> Speaking of good times, uh, I'd be curious for your thoughts. Uh, you ran the Oregon Cultural Trust. and
2: Technically not.
3: Oh, no? I'm sorry. What was the?
2: I ran, I know this is like a, a, just an important distinction to me, but nobody else is going to understand it. <laughs> so the Oregon Cultural Trust is a fund that people donate to that gives to culture. Okay. I ran the Oregon Cultural Advocacy Coalition. Which are all of the cultural nonprofits that come together in support of sustaining and preserving Oregon's arts heritage and the humanities.
3: Okay, that's uh, well. I appreciate you making that distinction because that's I'm not that bright and I wouldn't have known that. So. Well, they sound <laughs> no, so <I> similar. <laughs> the, the
2: names of the organizations sound really similar.
3: <laughs> but I I wanted to ask because that's something that uh, frankly Republicans are not tech generally associated with i i my wife and i go to broadway across america we go see Mm -hmm. all these musicals all the time oregon has a wonderful symphony that plays at the schnitz there's uh, all kinds of art i could well when i worked out of a building now everybody works from home because coronavirus we could see the art museum from right out of our building Mm -hmm. there and uh i would just be kind of curious for your thoughts a on you know what that was like and why you chose to go that direction for yourself but b what you think You know, if you think it's worth it for Republicans to try to engage in something that we don't really engage a lot in and, you know, what what benefits might come from that.
2: Yeah. I'm going to tell a personal story really quickly then. So I was a kid that was um, raised in rural Oregon. So. Um, small town rural Oregon and not I didn't have parents that were farmers you know we weren't land rich or anything quite poor actually and we moved a lot and so when you're a kid and and you're poor and you move a lot you don't play sports because you have all this tryouts and you know mm-hmm. there's it costs a lot and all those things and I probably was too shy for that anyway but you can walk on And you can try out for choir. (laughs) You know, you can walk on and be in the play. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when I was growing up, um, participating in the arts was the way that I met people and built connections when I was the, when I was in a family that moved all the time. And so it was really, really important to me personally. And it was like the thing that you remember, uh, that really kind of roots you Mm -hmm. and anchors you as you're kind of going through a lot of change. And so as a human being in this world, I have a lot of appreciation for the value of the arts in schools. And um, and as an adult, when I was chief of staff to the Speaker of the House, this is going to seem a little bit like a funny connection, but when I was chief of staff, when Republicans had controllable both chambers, they created the Oregon Cultural Trust. So they created the opportunity for people to support culture in Oregon by donating to this trust and receiving back a deduction on their taxes, their state taxes, by doing that. And so I was there when that idea got started. Hmm. And then I had the opportunity to work for an organization that supported that idea. Yeah. And full circle and so it was like a really, really good fit for me as yeah. a person. It really aligned with my own values. Um, they were very engaged in issues around K-12 education, and I was – uh, one of the administrators, when we first had the quality education model as a concept in the speaker's office, mm-hmm. um, I I worked in their office at that time, and then it kind of morphed into uh, a governor's commission, and then, of course, it went into the Constitution. And so the the interaction between arts and our personal lives is really, really, I think, valuable. And so I think, you know, there's a lot about communities that you – um, when you experience them, it's really all ab- all about whether or not that community is unique from everywhere else you've ever been. Mm-hmm. And and retaining your heritage and your history and having a way to express your own values and your culture and telling stories um, is really a great way to do that. And, and in Oregon, we have great stories to tell and we have great storytellers. And so um, for me that I was I loved doing that job. It was a great group of people that I was able to work with, you know, kind of year in and year out uh, for, uh, for um, kind of a value set that I personally believed in. So it wasn't weird for me. But when I ran as a Republican in a primary, there were some people that didn't understand it. I was in a four-way Republican primary when I first ran. And there were, there were some people that found that uncertain they didn't know what to do with that well and they i
3: I don't know how closely you followed the primary for cd2 a couple months ago but they went after jimmy crumpacker for that Mm. and it's like and I, i i obviously was backing new just because i had worked for the guy but like there's a million things you can go after Jimmy Crumpacker for. Why are we picking? Hey, he's too smart and he's too you know uh, he's an elitist. <laughs> he went to he goes to the ballet. He's on the board of the ballet. It's like, are we? Come on, y'all. What 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 line of attack is this? Who gets harmed by somebody going and seeing a ballet? Like
2: right. I think that what they were really saying. Was well, he well, wasn't going a to the ballet yeah. and bend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, well, uh, there, there's also, also some true. some
0: dog, also, yeah. dog whistle about, you know, LGBT issues and I don't know if you saw some of those.
2: You know, ads, guys, but. I stay out of everything <laughs> else. That's not my jam. I try to stay I try to stay in my lane. Sure. So
0: Alright, so well one more question before we ask the final question. Ooh, We're running out of time. Question. Um I'm curious, we talked about bringing balance back to Oregon and winning some seats. Are there any Races that you're kind of excited about coming into November is that something besides James? About? Besides uh, James, mine, course, right?
2: <laughs> I would just can can I give a shout out to James? You know, you know what's really incredible are candidates that make the decision to run when the value there is to give people a real choice and to ensure that um, that this idea that there's only one approach to ideas, there's only one approach to issues and problems that we had, just have to dispel that everywhere that there should always be two sides to every story and and different approaches to things are really, really critical to coming to the best possible solutions. And races include, we're we're including elections in that, right? Like Mm -hmm. you got to give people choices. So Mm -hmm. I love that you stepped up and made the decision to run in a tough, tough seat.
0: (laughs) Might be underselling it a little bit. (laughs) I know.
2: But it's still pretty amazing. So thank you for doing that. Thanks and I would say I am excited about all my races. Okay. So there you have it.
0: Good. Politician answer. Yeah, anytime. (laughs) 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 All right. We're talking to a politician. Well, before we we close out, we do ask one question of all our guests and gave you a little heads up before we started, but um, who is your favorite Republican?
2: So I have worked for a series of Republican leaders in the state legislature, and uh, so... I had just this opportunity to see people come into these leadership roles and then change Hmm. in the office, Hmm. kind of in front of your eyes, as they either get a taste for power or a sense of how little they know and how much there is to learn. Um, And sometimes they just change because of the pressure and the stresses and the impacts on family. And so... I have to say, the people that I worked for, I have great admiration for. And as a group, I want to put them in my, like, I love all of them. But for someone that I did not work for, that I admire greatly, uh, was um, Senator Hatfield. Uh, when I was staff in the building, I had this opportunity to sit down with him and interview him on leadership. And so somewhere in some box in some closet in my house is that is a tiny little tape um, of Senator Hatfield and I just talking like you and I are today about what his experience of leadership was. And at the time, he had just retired like one year previous to that. And so um, he and so, you know, he was he was fresh out of all of it. And he was just such a gentleman. And so inspirational to me. And I know, um, he had the, uh, he had the, the benefit of a lot of life experience to really build a very, um, sort of sturdy sense of values around. And I would say without really a question that that was a highlight for me and just having, he was just generous with his time and he was just so kind. Um, but, but really, really, really just an h- inspirational human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would have to say Senator Halfway.
1: Very cool.
3: It's a solid choice. I honestly, the most recent episode before this that we did was with the chair of the PPS board, the school mm-hmm. board, uh, who's was also the officiant at my wedding, but she said the same thing.
1: Oh, really? And I, I
3: feel- yeah, she's okay. somebody who is, sits in her office in an apolitical position, but she just said growing up in Oregon was just some of the most inspirational, some of the greatest public service, yeah, left or right. Yeah. And uh, and it's, it's great to hear that from a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: and I would like to, I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, he took some positions that were incredibly unpopular. Mm-hmm. He took some votes that uh, were scathing for him. And, and you know, history has still really treated him well because the arc of his service was so substantial and, and impactful to the state and our nation. So he's a great guy. Go
3: Just ahead. like yours will
1: be.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Uh, that note I'm I'm, I'm grimacing at that one so you can't see my face right now but yeah it's definitely a grimace
0: on that note I think we're going to end the podcast Uh, Representative Drazen thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to talk to us and listeners we will talk to you next time thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast your hosts are James Ball and Nick Berlosky Lauren Christensen is our producer you can find our episodes at jamesaball.com iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts.